we will continue our series, the title of which is in the upper right-hand corner of the notes that you have, Praying with Your Eyes Open, four weeks, this is the second of those four weeks, on the subject of prayer. Before we get into the material, though, uh, let me remind you of a few things. One, this evening and throughout December, we are not going to meet on Sunday evenings for our home groups, our community groups, uh, and that's uh, because of a number of things that are going on because of the holiday. On the 18th, two weeks from today, we have our adult uh, Christmas fellowship. And tonight, we have our, our architects here from uh, Grand Rapids who are helping us uh, design renovations to a ministry center, church building that we hope to uh, convert into a church building. But they're helping us decide if we can do that and how much it will cost. So they're here to continue their work, and we're going to be working with them tonight. A number of our leaders are going to be at that. So that's going to preempt our community groups for this evening. So no community groups tonight or throughout December. Ladies, on Tuesday is the uh, Advent outreach event, and we encourage you to come. Had a great time. I know uh, I heard from all the ladies last year. I know this year will be no exception. Uh, And we have Carol Selstead, our missionary, who's going to be our our guest speaker. Uh, We'll also be taking a collection for the Lincoln Park uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center. The invitations uh, for that event tell you what items you can bring. You don't have to bring something, but if you can, there'll be a, a spot to place that, and then this coming week we'll take it to, uh, to the Lincoln Park Center. So that's all this uh, Tuesday at 7 o'clock at Huron Baptist. And before you leave today, we've got to know uh, who's coming. We think we mostly know who's coming, but if you've been on the fence or you've just forgotten to go and register, then before you leave today, in fact, it won't hurt my feelings if you get up now and go over to the uh, registration table and uh, tell Sandra that you're going to be going. But that's this Tuesday at 7 o'clock. Every Wednesday, we have our midweek programs. We have a full complement of services for every age group, and that all takes place at uh, Patrick Henry Middle School, which is about a mile and a half from here on Hall Road. It's at 7 o'clock on, on Wednesday. And then I mentioned our Adult Christmas Fellowship. That's two weeks from this evening. It's at the Allen Park Community Center, and it's at uh, 6 o'clock. And you see in your program what we ask you to bring for that. If your name goes A through L, I think it is, and then M through Z, there are different things that we ask you to bring depending on your, your last name. And we have a, a, a kind of gag gift, a white elephant gift exchange uh, at the end of that. So you want to bring one gift per person. So if two of you are coming then each of you bring a gift, you wrap it, you don't put your name on it, and then at the end we'll make you fess up. So understand that. You've got to fess up as to what you brought. So take that into consideration when you <laughs> decide what it is you're going to bring. Okay? And then if nobody fesses up, you know, if we got one person who didn't fess up, we can do process of elimination on that. If it's two people, then God will have to figure it out, but he will. And, and he'll reveal it to me, and then I'll tell the whole church. All right? <laughs> So that's two weeks from tonight, and so we uh, hope you'll mark that on your calendar and plan to come. Today, page six, in our second of four weeks on this important issue of prayer, praying with your eyes open. Last week, we looked at starting our prayers in Jesus' name. And if you were with us last week, uh, you, you know that we don't mean literally a formulaic, this is what you should say and that you should start your prayers by saying, in the name of Jesus, I ask, or I praise, or you can do that. And that can put us in a good frame of mind to pray in a way consistent with all of the things we laid out in pages 1 through 5 last week. 
So it's perfectly valid to start your prayer in Jesus' name or end your prayer in Jesus' name. The truth is, we really don't have to say in Jesus' name. We have to pray with an attitude that we're coming on the basis of the merit that Jesus supplies for us. And we can only come to the Father because of Jesus. And when we pray in Jesus' name, we are saying that we want our prayers, our petitions, our requests to conform to the purposes of Jesus in his world. And so I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to read those first five pages and all of our sessions, our 9.30 worship sessions and these Discovering God 11 o'clock hour sessions are all on our website, so you can listen to that if you weren't uh, here last week. So starting our prayers in Jesus' name, that was last week. Today, at the top of page 6, you see offering our prayers in Jesus' way. And I say at the top there, when we pray in Jesus' name, we petition God to fulfill the purposes of his kingdom and bring him glory. This is the way Jesus taught us to pray in his Sermon on the Mount. And the fact that Jesus' model prayer is first given, Matthew 6, 9 through 13, in the context of this most famous sermon in those three chapters, 5 through 7, the fact that it's there is instructive. And here's why. Because the Sermon on the Mount is about the radical reordering of our values that Jesus effects. Now, that's a mouthful. But if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I'm convinced that's what you'll find there that Jesus is saying that my followers have a radical reordering of what they value. And that, in turn, affects everything. It affects their relationship, of course, with God. It affects their relationship with others. It affects their view of justice and forgiveness and generosity and all sorts of things. It's a radical reordering of what we value. Now, I say radical. That's one of those words that, you know, makes the rounds and comes in vogue, like awesome, whatever, radical. Now, why do I use that word? I use it advisedly because it fits. Because the word radical is from a Latin word that means root. And so when we say that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he is giving us a radical reordering of our values to the very root, to the foundation to the core, we are changed from the inside out, resulting in a different outlook on life, and then ordering our lives around that radically changed, transformed perspective. And so I'm not just piling up words there, I'm using them carefully. When I say the Sermon on the Mount is about the radical reordering of our values that Jesus affects in us, and that radical reordering, last sentence there, of priorities and values and allegiances is seen in the disciples' prayer. Now, I call it the disciples' prayer. Most know it as the Lord's Prayer. And the only reason I do that is because it's a prayer that the Lord gave to his followers. It's not a prayer for the Lord, but it's a prayer the Lord gave his followers to pray. And as a matter of fact, uh, Jesus cannot pray the prayer that he gave to his, fo his followers. Because, as most of you know, it has in it, forgive us our debts. And Jesus has no debts to forgive. So this is not a prayer that Jesus designed for himself. It's not a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's a prayer that he gave to us as a model of how it is that we're to pray. And thus, I call it the disciples', the disciples prayer. 
But before instructing on how to pray, in that Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 5, the the actual model prayer begins in verse 9, but back in verse 5 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, here's how you're not to pray. And I have the verses listed for you, so you don't have to, you don't have to juggle the Bible and the, the pages. It's there for you. Before telling us how to pray, he says, here's how you're not to pray. And here's why it's important for us to know not only how we should pray, but also how we should avoid praying because of what I have in bold there. How we talk to God, how we talk to our Father, shows what we think of Him. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, if the only time your child talks to you is when he or she needs something, that says something about what they think about you, right? And if the only time we talk to our Father is when we need something or want something, it says something about what we think of Him. And Jesus gives us three very common errors, misconceptions about God that in turn then are misconceptions about prayer. These are ways that we are not to pray. The first one is, we're not to talk to God as though he were insignificant. Here's what Jesus says. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, And pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now I say that Jesus is telling us here, don't pray to God as though he were insignificant. And here's why I use the word insignificant. When we pray this way to impress people, then what we're saying is that the most important person hearing this prayer is not God. It's somebody or someone's some other people. And so to that extent then, God is not the most significant audience for our prayer when we are motivated to pray such that people hear us and we, and we impress them, which is clearly what the hypocrites were, were doing. Now, I tell you some things here that Jesus is not condemning when he says, don't do this. He's not saying it's wrong to pray in public. Uh, He commended, I have listed for you there in Luke chapter 18, he commended the public prayer of a tax collector who went to the temple to pray. And he prayed publicly and he was heard. So Jesus was not condemning public prayer. And I have listed for you there as well 1 Timothy chapter 2, where in the context of the local church, a church like this, we are told that in congregational worship, one of the things that should happen is prayers should be offered and intercessions made for all men, for kings and those who are in authority. So the problem is not praying in public. And so when Jesus says you go into, into your closet, he's not saying that when we come together, no one should lead in prayer or, or any of that. But rather, he is condemning the idea of praying to be seen and heard and impress and impress men. He's condemning what I call here play praying. Because in the verses just prior to this, he is, he is also condemned play giving. When you give, Jesus said, your alms. When you give for the poor, do not give so that people will see your great giving and then praise you for how much you, how much you have done. But rather, he says, do that 
to be seen of your, of your Father. And likewise with prayer. He's condemning play praying just like he was condemning play, play giving. He's not against public praying, and he's not against public giving, but he's very much against praying or giving with the motive to be seen by and to impress others. Now, you notice as well, I, I say in the middle of that paragraph that it's also not wrong. I just want to say this. It's not wrong to pray in a way that's helpful to the people who hear. If you're praying publicly, you are first and foremost, of course, addressing God. Whenever we pray, we are first and foremost addressing God. But if you're praying publicly, you might address God in a way that is also helpful to the people who hear you. And I pray publicly and do a pastoral prayer every week. And I think about and prepare that prayer with the idea in mind of what could be most helpful to our congregation. I'm addressing God, but I'm also trying to help our congregation. Now, do we have any precedent for that in Scripture? I have, in the middle of that paragraph, referenced John 11, where Jesus prays at the home of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, and the Bible tells us there that Jesus prayed and then says, I didn't say this for my benefit, but for the benefit of those who were, who were hearing. So it's sometimes appropriate to do that, but always, 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 God is the one who is the most significant recipient of our prayer. So how do we not talk to the Father? We don't pray as though he were in, insignificant. Now I want to add one other thing before I go on to another way we're not supposed to pray. If God is the most significant person for our prayers, then does it follow that we shouldn't worry too much about what people think who hear it? Let me say it again. If God's really the one we're talking to, then why should I be embarrassed that other people hear? This is just sort of a side, but when we have our Sunday evening home groups, one of the things we do is pray. And we invite anyone who would like to pray, and those of you that have been in them know that, anyone who would like to pray, take a few of these requests that we've given and bring those to, to the Father. You don't have to, and that's going to be our rule. You don't have to. But I just want to encourage you that you should not be forever afraid to talk to your Father just because other people are there. You see, because this being too impressed by people can go both ways. I can pray in a way to impress people, but I can also be silent because I'm overly impressed by people. And neither of those should be true of us. And so I want to encourage you to think about, hey, who's the most significant person hearing this prayer? And I'm talking to my Father, and I can talk to my Father in ways that we're going to talk about today. But as His child... And I'm not worried about who hears it. And if anybody might judge the content of my prayer, that's their problem. And it is their problem, right? So if any of you here have been accustomed to just passing on the prayer thing, I want you to, I encourage you to, to rethink that. So we do not talk to God as though he were insignificant. And then B, do not talk to God as though he were impersonal. Verse 7, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. D.A. Carson says this, Prayer should not consist of heaped up phrases, idle repetitions, 
and the ridiculous assumption that the probability of an answer is in proportion to the total number of words. <laughs> now, related, I think, to what I was talking about a, a bit ago, about us being afraid to talk in front of people, afraid to pray in front of people. We're too impressed with people, so we worry too much about what they think. So we get nervous, and, and we've all done this, and then we just pile up these phrases. You know, we're just nervous and we just start. And so we, we ought to be able to take a breath and say, I'm talking to my father and talk to my father in calm and measured tones about what it is that I have on my heart. And we can, we can in nervous sorts of ways, slip into this just repeating phrases and, and piling up phrases. And then most of us over time develop our own pet phrases. Right? So, and if this is you, I'm not, I'm just making things up, but, you know, dear Lord. And so, dear Lord in prayer is like, ah, when you're talking. You know, you're talking, and, uh, you know, and then we went to, uh, and, then, and then you're praying, and it's, you know, dear Lord, will you, and then dear, and, uh, dear Lord, and then stick in the dear Lord when you're trying to think of something else, okay? So we don't need to be nervous and then pile up phrases, and especially we don't need to pile up phrases because we think that somehow that is going to gain us uh, favor with God and cause Him to give us what we, what we want. And that's why I call it impersonal. God's not a machine. You're not approaching a machine that you just keep putting the coins in and you hope you hit the jackpot. God is a person and we approach Him as a person. We can and should, in Luke 11, Jesus says, approach God about the same matter multiple times. That's well and good. But we should never approach God with the idea that he's this impersonal slot machine that I just keep badgering with long enough, and then he'll finally relent and say, okay, enough of you. Now, what are some of the equivalents of this in our day? Well, I believe that, that beads and just going through the same prayer over and over again falls under the condemnation of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. Prayer wheels, you all know what prayer wheels are? Those are Eastern religions that you have a, you have a prayer wheel, the prayer wheel turns, and you just it's, it's a way of keeping track. And uh, we, <laughs> prayer wheels have slipped into evangelicalism. When I was a kid growing up Pentecostal, we used to have these songs that we just loved. They were toe-tapping, clapping kinds of songs when I was Pentecostal. And one of them was, Have a Little Talk with Jesus. Anybody know Have a Little Talk with Jesus? Okay, all right. Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our troubles. He will hear our faintest cry, and he will answer by and by. And when you feel a little... Anybody know what's next? Prayer wheel turning. Yikes! You know, learning what the songs mean can really mess up some cool songs. You know that? <laughs> now, when you feel a little prayer wheel turning, then you'll know a little fire is burning. And just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Something like that, right? So, anyway, we, had prayer. we were singing about prayer wheels when I was a kid. These are all ways to, to go through and often do the same thing over and over again. Let me add one other way that we can have this misconception about you know, bombarding God. 
If we bombard him, then he'll relent. Here's another way. We think that if we have a matter to pray about, that we need to get the largest army of people to send in cards and letters to the throne room. And if we will overwhelm heaven's mailroom, then the poor soul in the mailroom, probably Peter, calls over and says, look, we've got to do something. We're inundated here. The machinery's malfunctioning. These people have jammed the switchboard. So we say, we've got to get all the prayers we can. How many times do we say that? Get all the prayers we can, because all of those prayers are going to affect change. I was just talking to someone this week about that. There was someone who was ill, didn't want to be on the, the prayer list, and uh, the thinking was, you need to be on a prayer list because we need all those prayers. And, and I said, one prayer can be as effective as a thousand. Did you know the reason that we ask lots of people to pray? Is because in the words of, I heard a guy say this a couple months ago, I thought it was a good way to put it. Multiple prayers result in multiple praise. The reason we have lots of people pray is so that when God answers, lots of people praise him for the answer to that prayer. So it is good to have lots of people pray. And it's good for lots of people to know that we're praying. And it's good for lots of people to know when that prayer is answered so that lots of people can render praise to God. That's, by the way, precisely what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. He says these prayers are going out by multiple people so that when God grants it, there will be multiplied praise to God. Okay? All right, so we don't approach God as though he were insignificant. We don't pray, approach him as if he is impersonal. And then on page 7, we do not talk to him as though he were ignorant. Verse 8, do not be like the pagans. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So this is what we do. We approach God, and we've got a laundry list of info to give him. And if we're not careful, we can approach him with the assumption that he doesn't know how bad it is down here. You know, I know, God, it's a big world, and I know you're busy with typhoons and stuff in other parts of the world, but I've got to make the house payment over here. And I don't know if you forgot that, but there's the house payment, you know, and the kids are sick, and me and my spouse are having some difficulties, and my boss at work is still a jerk, and all that stuff. And we go through the list as if he doesn't know all of that. Now, we're going to see, when we look at how to pray, Jesus says, ask for our daily bread, for instance. It is good to ask God for specific things. But we're asking for specific things, assuming God already knows what's going on in our lives. And I'm not giving this as information because he wouldn't otherwise be aware of it. So don't talk to God as though he were insignificant or impersonal or ignorant. Well, how should we talk to him? Jesus gives this model prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. It's not wrong to recite the disciples' prayer. In fact, this prayer is actually given in two places, Matthew 6 and then a little bit shorter version in Luke 11. And in Luke 11, Jesus says, when you pray, say this. Now, in, in, in Matthew 6, he says, pray this way. 
So it's a, it's a model prayer, but there's nothing wrong with reciting the prayer from time to time. But doing it mindlessly falls under the condemnation of the vain repetition of the previous page. So it's not wrong to recite the disciples' prayer, but Jesus is not giving a formula as much as a model. And he begins in Matthew 6 saying, this then is how you should pray. So how do we pray? We approach him appropriately. And approaching God appropriately means doing so tenderly and also reverently. Jesus says, start your prayer this way, our Father. So we approach him in an appropriate way, and that means tenderly as our Father. Now, when Jesus says, when you pray, say our Father, you need to catch the radical nature of that. If you would go and read John chapter 8, in John chapter 8, you have yet another encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders, a hostile encounter. And Jesus is saying, before Abraham was born, I am. He's claiming to be God, just like God told Moses in Exodus 3. Moses says, who should I tell Pharaoh has sent me? Tell him, I am has sent you. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. He's claiming to be God. And they say, how can, how can you be born before Abraham? Our father Abraham. And then they go on to talk about Abraham being our father. And Jesus says, your father is the devil. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, you guys hear me say stuff and you go, really? Isn't that a little harsh? And it probably is. But it's nothing compared to the stuff you see Jesus say. Anyway, he says, you're of your father, the devil. And then he talks about his father and my father, who is not your father. And they pick up stones to stone him because he makes God his father. So this notion of saying our father was a radical idea. But Jesus is saying to his first followers and to us that we're to approach God in that way. He is our Father. Why? Because of what I say in the middle of page 7. We have an intimate relationship with God. We can only come to God this way and say our Father because we have been brought into his family. So when I start a prayer, when you start a prayer and we say Father, the background of that is I'm in your family. And the background of that is that at one time I was outside of your family without God and without hope in the world, Ephesians 2 says. And yet we've been adopted. That's the, that's the word that the Bible uses for us being brought into God's family. Galatians chapter 4, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So we not only have a, a relationship with God, this is an intimate relationship with God. As a son or daughter, to their father, and underscoring that is this phrase, Abba, Father. When Jesus walked the earth, in all likelihood, he spoke Aramaic. And the Aramaic word for father is Abba. And so when Jesus said to the apostles, pray our father, he said verbally, say Abba. And Paul says, we have the Spirit now, having been made sons and daughters, adopted into God's family, and we can approach God as our Abba. Now, why does that matter? Why does Abba matter? 
Here's why. Because it's just two simple, elemental syllables. Abba. And it's the first things that come out of the mouth of a baby. Just like a child will say, Dada or Mama. Abba is that sort of word. That sort of intimate, daddy kind of word. I was working in a, a computer department back in the day when, when I worked a real job. And one of the guys that worked in our department was from Lebanon, Middle Eastern. And he was horsing around with, uh, with our, our manager and said something like, I want to I I live in your house. I want to be in your family. And then the manager said something like, sure, come on over. And then this Middle Eastern Lebanese guy put his head on his, on his shoulder, playing around, and then said, Baba. And that was the Arabic word for daddy. The Arabic word is Baba. The Aramaic word is Abba. And all of them signifying the same idea of an intimate relationship with our father. Now, you could just go on for a long time about the significance of that that you and I have been brought into God's family and can approach him, in effect, as our daddy. We approach him appropriately, and that means tenderly, recognizing we have an intimate relationship with him, but also we have an exclusive relationship with God. Jesus said, famously in John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he is whose father? He's our father. He's not everybody's daddy. He's not everybody's father. He's nobody's father automatically. He is only our father because we come to him through Jesus. But we are part of his family and exclusively so, that is excluding those who have chosen or have not yet come to him through Jesus Christ. So we approach him Tenderly, but we also need to bear in mind, and Jesus tells us this, we need to approach him reverently, bottom of page 7. So it's not just our Abba, our Father, but it's our Father in heaven. And reminding us that he is our Father in heaven reminds us of who it is we're dealing with. Because I think you would agree, if you are not careful, then this could degenerate into... Something like the t-shirt I saw years ago. And it said, God's rad, he's my dad. And that's what we tend to do, isn't it? God invites us who are unworthy to this intimate relationship with him, and then we take a flippant attitude toward it. And Jesus tells us, he is our Abba, thanks be to God, but he is our, he is our Abba, our Father, who is in heaven. Now what does that remind us of? I have this lengthy quote from Carson at the top of page 8. The Jews of Jesus' day were inclined, on the whole, to conceive of God as so exalted that personal relationships with him could scarcely be imagined. He was so transcendent that the richness of personality was frequently lost to view. By contrast, much modern evangelicalism tends to portray him as exclusively personal and warm. Well, that should be warm. Nice. Warm. I'll have, to, I'll have to have a word with my typist. Okay, I have. That would be me. Somehow his sovereignty and exalted transcendence disappear. 
If you enter American churches, you will hear, says Carson, the enthusiastic singing of some such ditty. And then he says, I can scarcely grace it with chorus, as he's a great, big, wonderful God. Regrettably, I never fail to think of a great, big, wonderful teddy bear. Such so-called choruses are not quite heretical and not quite blasphemous. I sometimes wish they were, but then they could be readily condemned for specific evil. Evil. There's something much worse than isolated blasphemy and heresy. They constitute part of a pattern of irreverence. Shallow theology and experience-dominated religious criteria, which has eviscerated a terribly high proportion of evangelical strength in the Western world. Well, that's a mouthful, but he's saying, he's our father, he's our Abba, let's, let's thank him for that. We don't deserve that, and we get to approach him like that. Let's also remember that he is our father in heaven, and he has all authority, and he is the sovereign God, and let's approach him accordingly. Fortunately, says Carson, there are still believers who, with solemnity, meaning, and dignity, join together to sing some such praise as this, immortal, invisible, God-only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. O praise we would render, O help us to see. It's only the splendor of light that hideth thee. So sometimes you guys wonder, you know, every now and then we, we sing these, these old hymns. Why do we sing these old hymns? Well, not because they're old, and we don't sing other stuff because it's new, but because it's good, and because it's got truth to it, and that's got some serious truth to it, and that's better than he's a great, big, wonderful teddy bear God. So when we talk to God, approach him appropriately. And then talk to the Father about the Father and talk to the Father about the family. So when Jesus says now, say, or, or, here's a model prayer, approach him our Father in heaven, and then he gives what to the content of the prayer. The address is our Father in heaven. But then the content of the prayer is six requests, six petitions. Three of them are about God, and three of them are about us. And they're in that order, about God and about us. So when we do that, if we will practice this sort of model prayer, when we come to God and we say to God then, I'm coming to you, God, in the name of Jesus, on the merits of Jesus, all the stuff we talked about last week. And then I address the things that God has said are most important to Him first. Now I've prioritized things appropriately. And then I come to God and I give him my petitions. So we approach the Father about the Father, and then we talk to the Father about the family. That's what we have on pages 8 and 9. So talk to the Father about him. There are three of these six requests related to him. The first one is this, hallowed be your name. And when we say hallowed be your name, we are asking that God's character be adored. How so? In Scripture, the name of God represents who He is, represents His character. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we're not just talking about the letters G-O-D or, or Christ or Jesus. Hallowed be your name is saying we want to be hallowed, and I'll explain what hallowed means, but we want all that's represented by your name, your character, 
to be hallowed. Hallowed be the character of our God. Now what's hallowed mean? Hallowed means holy. And so it's a request that says this, may your name be holy. May your name, may your character be set apart in the hearts of all who approach you, including me. If I'm going to say, may your name be holy, then I have to want that, right? And not just for me, I want that for all in his world, that his name, his character be extolled in his world. The first of the six petitions deals with God and says, Lord, we want your character to be spread and represented and honored by all people, including the one giving this prayer. Secondly, it's hallowed be your name and then your kingdom come. We're asking that his kingdom be established. Established. Now, if I'm looking for God's kingdom and I'm wanting God's kingdom, If I'm approaching God with the mindset of John in Revelation 22, at the end of your Bible, at the very end of your Bible, where John says, after all of this has been revealed about the end and the consummation of history and the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom, John signs off Revelation by saying, you all remember what he says? He says, surely, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Why? Because John, 2,000 years ago, says, Lord, I want that. Come quickly. And for us to say your kingdom come means what I say at the bottom of page 8. That we have a holy dissatisfaction with the world. You don't pray your kingdom come if you love the world. If you're comfortable here. But if you have the kind of homesickness that the Bible speaks of. Where we are strangers and aliens in a foreign land looking for the blessed hope of the Lord's return, you come to Advent with anticipation. And he came the first time 2,000 years ago, and we, with all of God's people, look forward to him coming again. And we say, surely, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Your kingdom come. We're expressing a holy dissatisfaction, anticipating his coming, and his making all things new. So many things, friends, that you could just casually look around at in our world that should give you that kind of kingdom focus that says, Lord Jesus, come quickly. If you're just, if you're, you're not even immersed in God's word. (laughs) You're just doing a cursory review every now and then. You see the sharp contrast between what God says there and what's happening in his world. And your heart as God child aches and says, Lord, I long for the time that what you say in your world becomes reality. And justice is executed properly and quickly and swiftly, righteously. And those who are in need are taken care of. All of the blessings of the the glorious kingdom that are promised in Scripture. The lion laying with the lamb. And men will beat their swords into plowshares, Isaiah chapter 2. And they'll study war no more. What a blessed thing. And so your kingdom come, and then last for today, and then we'll get to the other three next week. We should ask that his desires be accomplished. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I say there, this is not about God's sovereign will, but it's his moral will. When we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're expressing our longing 
that what God wants will be the desire of all on earth, just as it is now in heaven. Now, when I say sovereign will and more will, I'll explain that and then we'll quit. But the Bible teaches, and I believe firmly, and I hope you do too, that our God is a sovereign God, meaning he has complete authority and control over his world. And there is no one and no thing that can alter his plan. Did you know that? No one and no thing will alter his plan. No one, nothing. That's why he can give you a book of Revelation and say this is how it turns out. You know how he knows this is how it turns out? Because he controls all the stuff that leads up to it. It's going to, it is going to finish exactly as he has planned because he is the sovereign God. So in that sense, God's will is always done. In the sense of God's sovereign will, if you want to know what God's sovereign will is for today, ask me tomorrow. And it's whatever happened. It is all the good, bad, and the ugly. All part of his grand plan to bring to consummation his outline for history. When we pray your will be done, then I don't have to pray your sovereign will be done. Right? His sovereign will is always done. But I do pray that his moral will be done. And God has revealed his moral will in Scripture. If you care to jot down Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. But then says, But these commandments are given to us as his children, have been revealed, made known to us. So there you have the secret things. I don't know what God's plan is for an hour from now, but I'll know an hour from now. But he has made known his moral will in Scripture, and he has told me to obey that and follow that. And what we desire is that all people follow that, that I follow that, what he has prescribed in his moral will, in his word, having made it known. Now, <clears throat> in God's sovereign will, in his inscrutable sovereign will, I don't know what inscrutable means, but it's a cool word. But in God's sovereign will, he even uses people who break his moral will. Right? Did he use Pharaoh? Did he use Herod? Did he use Pilate? All these guys are breaking his moral will. Every one of them. And he used their breaking of his moral will to accomplish his sovereign will. Go figure. And he will hold them responsible for their willful disobedience of his moral will. We long for a time when God's sovereign will and his moral will are merged. Everything that he has decreed comes to pass and everyone who is subject to him desires to do what he wants to come to pass. That day is going to be in the future. In the meantime, God has sovereignly decreed all that happens, but he has told us, revealed for us, given us his moral will in his word, and he holds us accountable and all people accountable for following his revealed moral will. And when we pray, your will be done, we're praying, Lord, I want what you have told us in your word 
to be the marching orders, the desire of the hearts of all of your creatures. Now, I'm done. I just reiterate, may your name be made holy. May your character be extolled in your world. Lord, I desire that your kingdom come and that your moral will be done. If I pray that, would you agree? Then I have to mean that from my heart. Father, I want these things for me and all of your creatures. Let's pray to our God.